We know that as he walked this earth, he fulfilled all the prophecies in the Old Testament, over 300 of them perfectly to the letter. And as he fulfilled his ministry, he gained quite a following. And the Jewish leaders absolutely hated him for it. They considered him competition that they couldn't match. And so for three years, they dog-tracked him through the, the hills of Palestine, trying to trip him up, finding some way that they could twist him in his words. Well, it's coming to a head now. And they're about to set this trap that they think is foolproof for the Lord to catch him. Will it work? Or will it backfire? Will their hypocrisy backfire? Let's see. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Mark in the 12th chapter. Mark chapter 12. We've been studying the book of Mark verse by verse, and we're down to, I think, the, the waning days of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's kind of hanging around the temple now. And we saw that last time he gave a parable to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the men who make up the Sanhedrin. And they got his drift. It was a parable about this owner of a vineyard, remember that? Who leased out the vineyard to some men and took a journey into a far country. And he sent back servants to, I guess, get the the money, the fruit of the vineyard. The vineyard guys were uh, beating the servants and killing some. And finally, the owner of the vineyard said, well, I'll send my, my son, they'll reverence him. And they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And Christ asked the question, what will the Lord of the vineyard do when he comes to that place, back to the vineyard? And the uh, answer was obvious. He'll destroy those wicked men and give it to somebody else. And of course, what was the picture? Well, God's the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard was a picture of Israel, who, who God had sent prophet after prophet to warn over the years. And they had, they had beaten this one, stoned that one, killed the other one. Finally, God's saying, I'm going to send my only son. They'll reverence him, but they didn't. They cast him out of the vineyard. He was crucified without the gate. We saw that, right? And, and the only Son of God suffered and bled and died for our sins. And Israel lost their nation. Now, it all fits. And on that backdrop, we look back in Mark chapter 12 here, and we pick it up in verse number 13. It says, And they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give, or shall we not give? But he said, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, that I may see it. And they brought it, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We're going to be talking today about when hypocrisy backfires. When hypocrisy backfires. But let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you now for this passage and the truths that we can glean from it. Help us to listen carefully over these next few moments. And please teach us and speak to our hearts. May thy Holy Spirit 
have his will and way in our lives, and we'll, we'll thank you for it. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of us who love the Lord and believe the Bible know that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, right? We know that he lived a sinless life. We know that he had power over disease and death and demons. We know that as he walked this earth, he fulfilled all the prophecies in the Old Testament, over 300 of them perfectly to the letter. And as he fulfilled his ministry, he gained quite a following, quite a following. And the Jewish leaders absolutely hated him for it. They considered him competition that they couldn't match. And so for three years, they dog-tracked him through the, the hills of Palestine, trying to trip him up, finding some way that they could twist him in his words. Here he was, the long-awaited Messiah, and they're trying to destroy him. Jesus Christ was aware of it. He told that last parable, knowing this is exactly how it's going to play out. Well, it's, it's coming to a head now. And they're about to set this trap that they think is foolproof for the Lord to catch him. Will it work? Or will it backfire? Will their hypocrisy backfire? Let's see. We see in this passage, first of all, the cunning contenders. In verse 13, it says, And they, the Sanhedrin, and they send unto him, Jesus, certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. Now, there's a parallel passage to this found over in Luke 20 and verse 20. It says, And they watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves or fake themselves to be just men, that they might take hold of his words so that they might deliver him under the power and the authority of the governor. So they're dog-tracking him. They're, they're, they're gunning for him. They're just waiting for him to mess up. They're suspicious of him. In fact, have you ever had anyone like that that just continually has uh, got some suspicion towards you or a critical spirit towards you or um, you call, call it white, they call it black. You call it black, they call it white. That was the Pharisees in Jesus Christ. We find the psalmist uh, writing about this in Psalm 56, verse 5. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Ever have anyone like that? Critical spirit, FBI spirit, you know what I mean? Just kind of keeping you under the magnifying glass and, and stinking thinking. And, and the, we call it the stinking eye. You know, you're, you're, you're on trial. And, and normally it's someone very uh, proud or, or self-righteous. I was at a preacher's meeting years ago and I heard a preacher get up and, and brag about his Bible college students who when they have a guest speaker into their church, those Bible college students are all over that speaker. And they're, they're, they're trying to catch something that he says and interrogating him like wolves. And, and he talked about that like it was cool. I thought to myself, uh, no, that's proud. That is not being gracious. That is being prideful. It's another spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. This spirit cometh not of him that calleth you. Now, how would you like to live continually critiqued? That's Jesus Christ. He's always under the magnifying glass of these guys. In fact, we find it in verse 13. They're trying to catch him in his words. You see that at the end? Trying to catch him. Any little slip. There they are with their little pad, writing it down, trying to find something that he says wrong. You know that when I preach, somebody counted the words I give in an, an average sermon one time. <laughs> and, and they said, Pastor, you speak anywhere from eight to 10,000 words every sermon. Think about that. Eight to 10,000 words. 
And, and so if you want to critique it and find something wrong, have at it. But really, you know, get a life, honestly. That's these guys here following Christ around, trying to catch him in his words. We read in Psalm 38, 12, They that seek my hurt speak mischievous things and imagine deceits all the day long. Ever had anyone like that dog cracking you? Critical spirit, FBI spirit, stinking eyes, stinking thinking. You know, we can all get infected with that, honestly. We have to be careful. And that's why I mention it here. What a way to live. Paranoid and cynical and, and suspicious and, and that little pad out playing junior Holy Spirit, you know, and uh, being like the Pharisees of old. We can all become like that. We have to be careful. They're trying to catch him in his words. We read in Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Just a little different way of saying it here, but always trying to catch him of something. And is that of God, honestly? You know, we talk about what would Jesus do. What did Jesus do? Jesus Christ tried to reach the world. He tried to disciple folks. He tried to help people. And maybe it's time that we'd be like Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers. He wasn't a troublemaker. Now, we find out here also in verse 13 that the Pharisees yoke up with the Herodians. Notice that. It's incredible because it's, it's about the most unlikely coalition that you'll ever see in your life. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Here's the Jews, and now they're, they're in league with Herod and the Romans and that bunch here. You know, normally the Jews bitterly, bitterly resented the Herodians. They squabbled continually. They, they, they hated paying tribute to the Roman people and, and there was no lost love one for the other. You talk about an awkward alliance here. I mean, awkward. I mean, it's awkward. These two are actually getting together? What's up here? Well, never forget this. Hypocrisy makes for strange bedfellows, doesn't it? They, they say politics does, but I think hypocrisy more. Where you find sinners, you find hypocrisy. They will stop at nothing when it comes to fulfilling their agenda here. We find that the Pharisees needed Rome. You know why? Because they couldn't execute Christ. They didn't have the power to do that. They needed somebody to get rid of him, and only the Romans could do that. Now, a few days earlier, there had been this big parade, remember? Christ on the donkey, triumphant entry into Jerusalem, uh, palm branches thrown down, everybody crying, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I mean, it was a, uh, a ticker tape thing if they'd had him in those days. It was followed by Christ throwing everybody out of the temple, <laughs> cleaning house. I love that part. But you've got now this potential troublemaker, and he's in Jerusalem, and don't think that Herod didn't hear about this. And Pilate didn't hear about this. They heard about this. I mean, the whole area is on alert. It's a red alert. And it's a perfect time for the Jews now to do some baiting, to bait Christ and pull him into something here. They're trying, according to verse 13, to catch him in his words. They want to catch him in his words. That word catch there is interesting in verse 13. It actually is a Greek word that speaks of a hunting or ensnaring a fowl in a trap or even a fish in a net. They're trying to ensnare him. That's what the word catch means here. And at this particular time, Rome, as I said a moment ago, was on high alert, and, and Rome was always extra sensitive to a tax protester, to anyone who didn't pay taxes or led some a revolt against the taxes that Rome imposed upon the world at that time. And so get the picture here. Especially around Passover time, everything is, is really beefed up. And so the stage is set. 
We see the cunning contenders, but secondly, we see the crafty challenge. In verse 14, it says, And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, backing up, notice they call him master, meaning teacher, meaning doctor, meaning instructor. Very flattering words, but phony talk. Don't buy it. They're not sincere. By the way, there are, there are cults, and I've talked to people in cults many times who, who try and convince me that they believe in Jesus like we do as Bible believers. Oh, we, we believe in Christ. We believe He's the Messiah. Uh, we, we believe in Him, but they really don't. As you talk a little closer, they don't believe in the virgin birth like you believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in His, his divinity and deity like you do. In fact, they don't believe in the blood atonement like you do. It, it's just talk, but it's not true. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Master, are they sincere? We read in Psalm 12 too, they speak vanity, everyone, with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, with our tongue will we prevail. That's exactly what this crowd is thinking as they're coming out to Jesus Christ. Now notice in verse 14 again, they call him master and they say, we know that thou art true. Is that the truth? Lord, we believe you speak the truth. No, that's a lie within itself. They didn't believe he had the truth, not at all. They denied his teaching. They they viewed him as a deceiver and a liar and a fraud. They're lying through their teeth here. It's a phony compliment. We read what the wise man said in Proverbs 26, 24. He that hateth dissembleth or pretends with his lips and layeth up deceit within him. When he speaketh fair, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart. You ever have someone like that? They appear genuine, sincere on the surface. And, and oh, yeah, and they, they talk to you. Oh, you're, I'm concerned about you. I love you. All that kind of thing. But it's phony. How many of you remember Eddie Haskell? From Leave it to Beaver, huh? Why, you look very nice today, Mrs. Cleaver. And oh, you, sir, Mr. Cleaver. Oh, that's a smart suit you have on. And Wallace and I are just going upstairs now to do our homework. And and just all this stuff. And we used to just laugh at that because it's so typical of human nature. And the Pharisees, all phony talk. There are folks and they appear sincere. They appear concerned. uh, They appear to have your best interest in mind. And you think they're real. And they think they're real. (laughs) But they don't know their own heart. In fact, they butter you up. But in Proverbs 26, 23, it says that burning lips and a wicked heart are like a potsherd covered with silver dross. A piece of pottery with not real silver, but the, the impurities from the silver covering. And it's like, this is worthless. And that's what burning lips and a wicked heart are like, according to the Bible. It's all phony flattery meant to ensnare. The psalmist said in Psalm 55, 21, The words of his mouth were smoother smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. Drawn swords, ready to do battle. Now, notice back in verse 14 again. It mentions, they say, Master, we know that thou art true. Notice the next part. And carest for no man. What do they mean by that? You don't give a rip about anyone? No, that's not what they're saying. The, the rest goes on to explain it. For thou regardest not the person of men. In other words, they're saying, Lord, 
uh, you're not biased. You're not prejudiced. We understand that you're no respecter of persons. That you kind of treat everybody the same. The ground is level as far as uh, you're concerned. And by the way, that was the mindset of the Lord. I mean, he hung out with fishermen and tax collectors, harlots, things like that. But you know, I know very few people that that can be said of. They're not respecters of persons. I would like to think I am, but I catch myself. I don't know about you, but I, I, I would guess that you could catch yourself as well. I think if the Queen of England came in here and sat amongst us, uh, we'd kind of be around her. Oh, hey, you know. But if the average Joe Schmo is sitting off in the corner someplace or sitting, standing somewhere, uh, we can ignore him. We are respecters of persons, folks. God help us to watch that. And may I encourage the folks of Fargo Baptist to uh, scope out the Joe Schmo, okay? <laughs> if you see somebody sitting alone or you see somebody standing alone, make a point of going over to that person and asking them their name and asking them where they're from and, and what brings them to town or what brings them to church or where they went to high school or whatever it might be, but to take an interest in people. We find this in Second Chronicles 19.7. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons. May that be said of us. They said it of Christ. He's no respecter of persons. Our God is no respecter of persons. And Christ was that way. We need to be that way. Now, at this point, the Sanhedrin is thinking. They're thinking that they have Jesus Christ sucked in. It's time to spring the trap. And at the last part of verse 14, notice, here it is. It says, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, we believe you're no respecter person, so just give it to us straight. Is it lawful, in your estimation, to give this tribute tax to Caesar? Well, we know how the Jews felt about it. The Jews were fiercely independent. They, were, they would rather be dead than under the boot of Rome or the heel of Italy. Rather be dead. And there's this, this history of the Jews fighting against the Romans. They loathed the Romans. In their mind, the Romans had no right whatsoever to infringe upon that land and tax it. God gave them that land. And that was true. God had given them that land. And now the Romans are taxing it. And worse yet, this money is going to this idolatrous nation like Rome. The Romans had taxed the Jews on imports agricultural goods, uh, transportation. They had even put a poll tax upon the Jewish people. It's called, it was called a head tax or a people tax. And what it was was uh, it, it, it cost the Jews a day's wages every year to just pay for this poll tax. And what it was was a tax on uh, the person just being alive, basically, breathing the air, whatever else it might be. The Jews saw it for what it was. It implied that the Romans had authority and control over the, the Jewish, even their persons. And so there's this smoldering resentment of the Jews against the Romans. In fact, in 6 AD, there was a Jewish man by the name of Judas, Judas of Galilee, who led this tax revolt against the Romans and, and, and his uh, supporters were all crushed in the revolt. They all died and, and uh, it's mentioned in Bible and history. And, and now the Sanhedrin is thinking, if we can just get Jesus to do the same thing, there'll be the same result. In fact, he, it's, it's a no-lose deal. If Christ says, don't pay the tax, the Romans will come and get him. If Christ says, well, then pay the tax, the Jews will go, what, you traitor? And the popularity of Christ will plummet. So they had him either way here. By the way, it's been well said, whoever frames the question 
wins the argument, right? And so Jesus is on the home turf of the Sanhedrin. He's in their temple. They're asking the questions. The deck is stacked. Everything is against him. How is this thing going to play out? Well, in verse 15, they ask again, Shall we give or shall we not give? There they are, hands on the hips, stroking their beard, going, Well, you know, can you see it? Shall we give or shall we not give? On one hand, if they give... Christ is going to look bad for telling them to do so. If they don't give, Christ is going to look bad to the Romans. And they're going to hand them over to Pilate and Herod right away. Well, verse 15, shall we give or shall we not give? But he, notice this, knowing their hypocrisy. Did he have them scoped out already? You bet he did. He knew all about their hypocrisy. We read this in John 2, 24, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and... He knew what was in man. He knows what's in us. It's not flattering, by the way. What is in us? What was in them? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. He knew their hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is pointing a finger at somebody when there's three pointing back at you. And that's normally the way it works. When we go finding fault, there's normally some fingers pointing back at us. And the the longer I'm in the ministry, the more I'm amazed at that. You know, what is the best way to avoid hypocrisy? You ever think of that? Well, maybe critique yourself only. That's a good thought. Maybe leave other people alone. There's a novel thought. Uh, Maybe mind our own business. You say, but but, but they, they make mistakes. Yeah, and so do you. And so do I. We all make mistakes. And you know, I've, I've put it this way many times. The attitude with which we find fault is often worse than the fault we find, isn't it? That stinking thinking, that stinking attitude with which we find fault is often worse than the very thing we find, the fault in which we find. That FBI spirit is worse than the violation. I, it's just pew. I've, just, I've seen it over and over and over again. You say, but uh, what does the Bible have to say about this? The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? When we think we're sincere, we're not. And Jesus saw through it. These guys thought they were sincere and Christ saw their hypocrisy. And by the way, Christ sees our hypocrisy as well. We read in Revelation 2.23, Christ says, I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. You know, we can try and fool some people down here. But the day is coming when we will stand before the ultimate judge. And he will try our hearts and our reins and judge us according to our works. May I admonish every Christian here. Here's an admonition. Know your own depravity. God help us to know our own depravity. The Bible speaks of laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. God help us to practice that. Now, in verse 15, Christ says, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. Uh, Denarius is what he says. It was a tribute that must be paid. By the way, no Jew carried it. They would not carry this coin. We see the cunning contenders. We see the crafty challenge. And finally, we see the clever comeback. In verse 16, it says, And they brought it, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar. Now, as Christ is holding up this coin, the Jews are wincing. They absolutely hated this coin. You know why? Look behind me. This is what it looked like. 
It was an image of Tiberius to the left there. He was the adopted son of Augustus. Augustus had declared himself a god. And so this is kind of like the son of the god there. It was idolatrous. The Jews absolutely hated this coin. And it was a miniature idol to them. So what would Jesus do? Well, maybe they thought that Jesus Christ would oppose paying, paying the tax and, and uh, they would hand him over to the authorities right away. We read this in, in Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 16. Christ says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Isn't that good advice? We are, we are like sheep in the midst of wolves, if you haven't figured that out yet. We have to be wise as serpents sometimes, folks, yet harmless as doves. It's so profound. It is so simple. Well, what would happen here? Job has this to say about it in Job 5, verse 12. He, that is God, disappointeth the devices of the crafty. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. We're going to see that happen. Notice in verse 17, And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Can you just see the Pharisees slithering out at this point as he answered their question? That's not the answer they were looking for. In fact, they even lie about this answer later on at the the, uh, trial of Christ. Did you know that? We read in Luke 23, 2, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. That is a bold-faced lie. Christ had not said that. He said, pay to Caesar what Caesar has coming. Give to God what God has coming. That brings up a good question now. What about taxes? What about paying taxes as Christian people? Well, let me just say, somebody has to pay for these roads out here, right? And, and somebody has to pay for the police department that we enjoy. And somebody has to pay for the parks that we enjoy. And the military, thank God for the military that we have in this country. Somebody has to pay for that, though. Somebody has to pay for the infrastructure, as it were, and, and the lawmakers and all that kind of thing. And somebody has to oversee all that. So what about paying taxes? Well, in Romans 6, or 13, 6, it says, For this cause, pay ye tribute also. For they, that is those authorities, are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Those who are out there performing their jobs with tax money, building the things that we need in this country with tax money, are God's ministers continually attending upon this very thing. It goes on in verse 7 and it says, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. It's real simple, folks. We are to obey the civil authorities over us. And this, by the way, is found in all three Gospels, this very scenario here. Now, in verse 17, again, Christ said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. We find it said almost like a proverb. I mean, you've you've heard that even if you didn't know the Bible. You knew this verse. It's almost like this, this sacred truth that is widely quoted that really helps to identify the relationship between Christianity and secular man-made authority, as it were, government. And it's a balance here between the sacred and the secular. Here's a Christian's duty in a nutshell. Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, 
For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now, if we had time, we could look at verses that talk about how God sets kings up and God puts kings down. And I don't understand why he would set up like a, a, a rotten king like King Saul and, and some leaders like we've seen worldwide. I don't understand that. But I do know that God is sovereign. And I do know that even at the time this was written, Rome was in power. Oh, they were real godly, right? No, Rome was corrupt. I mean really corrupt. And yet, Peter writes, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. You say, but pastor, I've got a question. I know what the question is already. What about when government oversteps its biblical authority, right? That is the $64,000 question. What, when, what do we do when government goes too far? There will ultimately be a clash. I understand that. There have been times in the past, in the days of John Bunyan and other days, when government said you cannot preach that book. Or, in our time, maybe, you'll be forced to, uh, as a preacher to perform a wedding for two men that commit sodomy, and we will make you do this. And there are a number of examples that we can talk about. So what do we do at such times? Is this a new thing? Has it ever happened before? It's happened before. It happened in biblical days. It happened in the book of Acts. The apostles were brought in. They were beaten. They were told to never preach in the name of Jesus Christ again. And we find in Acts 5.29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. You always obey the highest authority. That's really the key. So if somebody asks you to do something, and maybe they're an authority in your life, you obey the highest authority. Now, if a husband asks a wife who's in submission to him to go steal some boots out at the mall for him, what does he do? He, he, or she do? She says, I cannot do that. There is an authority higher than that that says thou shalt not steal. See, you get the picture here. Now, notice in verse number 17, Jesus answering said unto them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. What is do God? You know, we can protest government quite a lot and, and, and say, oh, I don't believe in doing that, but be careful. All right? Let's start with God first. What is do God? Because when, when it gets down to the nitty-gritty and you have to protest, they might come along and say, oh, you follow that Bible, huh? Well, let's take a look. And, and, and David Gibbs would tell you they'll take you apart if you personally aren't living a, a consistent Christian life. Are we even obedient to God? What is do God? We're to render to God the things that are God. What does God have coming from a Christian? Obedience, love, honor for the house of God. Are we faithful in God's house as we ought to be? They might ask you that one day. How about stewardship? You really believe what the Bible has to say about stewardship and tithing? And th do you really practice that? You see where it's heading? I mean, they could take us apart personally if we are not consistent in our Christian lives. We turn around and protest something that the government is up to. Do we render to God our time, our talent, as well as our treasure? How about holiness? Does God have that coming? We read this in Romans 6.13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, that is your body, as instruments of righteousness unto God. Notice we're to render to God what is God's. 
And, and it speaks here of a holy life. Now, the Pharisees were hypocrites. They were, they were refusing allegiance to Rome, saying, oh no, we're going with God, when they were a bunch of hypocrites who were doing all kinds of wicked things. What about us? So do we render to God what we should? I hope so. But what do we owe our, our fellow man? What does he do? What does he have coming? What do we owe him? Do we owe him our love? I think so. Do we owe him our concern? I think so. Do we owe him our witness? In other words, to tell him how his sins can be forgiven, how he can become or she can become a child of God, how they can know for sure they're going to heaven when they die. Do we owe that to them? I think so. What about our testimony? Do we owe it to them to live a consistent Christian life, to have a good testimony? Do we curse around the unsaved? Do we cuss? Do we swear? Now, let me just say this. They don't expect you to do that. They might not correct you. They might not show any kind of a... But if you are one of those Christians, if you are a true Christian, a born-again, Bible-believing Christian, and you curse around them, they're going to go, whoa. You know, we owe more than that, don't we? That's low class. It's also unscriptural. You know, I heard a while back of the vice president dropping the F-bomb in the year of the President of the United States with a live mic, and uh, it was heard. And you would go, oh, that's, that's really beneath the dignity of that office. Folks, we have a higher office. As a child of God, I mean, that's as high as it goes. And there are some things that are beneath our dignity. God help us to get the victory over that. We read this in Titus 2.8. The Bible speaks of sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. Let's not put any ammo in their hands, folks. This is talking about the lost person hearing uh, the wrong kind of speech and not the sound speech, and as a result, being able to put condemnation on our testimony. We owe it to the unsaved to have a good testimony. God help us. We owe a debt to both God and man. Now, finally, notice the last part of verse number 17. It says, And they marveled, at him. They marveled at him. Another place it says they marveled beyond measure. I find that a couple of times. They were like shocked. It blew their mind. They were marveling at Jesus Christ. When is the last time we marveled about Jesus Christ? That's really a good question. You know, a few weeks ago, actually a little over a month ago, uh, we were at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And we weren't able to go into it. There was just security was tight and everything like that. But there was this little uh, Muslim boy, and, and we each gave him a buck or something like that. And the tour guide uh, said, this boy will lead us up into this, this Muslim school that overlooks the temple site. And so there we were on the wall of Jerusalem looking down at the temple mount. It was quite an experience. And I thought to myself, Jesus Christ walked in there at one time. Later on, they took us to the west side of the temple mount and they showed us some stones that had been uh, excavated down to 30 A.D. that were going in and out of the temple. And I looked at those things going, Jesus Christ walked on those stones. I wanted to go down and go, mm, walla, 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 but uh, we didn't have time. But, but I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, was here and walked on these stones. The one who spoke everything into existence. I thought about that. When's the last time we marveled at Jesus Christ? The one who lived a sinless life, 
the one who died a vicarious death, the one who fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, including this one. Proverbs 30, verse 4 says, Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Written a thousand years before he walked this earth, God tells us he has a son. And Jesus Christ made all kinds of theophanies or Christophanies or whatever you want to call them, but Old Testament appearances where where he came on the scene as a, a man, but yet God. When's the last time you marveled at him? I guess more importantly, when is the last time you, you really dedicated your life to him as a Christian? Or maybe as a non-Christian, have you given him your life? Have you given him your heart? I mean, you can marvel at him, you can have all the head knowledge in the world, but have you asked him into your heart, into your life? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Have you realized how much you need him in order to get to heaven? Bible's clear, you cannot work your way to heaven. You can get baptized as a baby. You can grow up in a church. You can get confirmed. You can do all kinds of good works and still die lost without Christ in this heaven. Have you ever seen yourself as a sinner? Because that's where it begins, in need of a Savior. And realize Jesus Christ is, yes, the Savior of the world, but your personal Savior. Died on that cross just for you. Yeah, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, but He gave Him for you individually. Have you had a time in your life when you accepted what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross as the atonement for your sins and you placed all your faith in that as the only thing you're trusting in to get you to heaven when you die? That's what the Bible calls salvation. That's what Jesus Christ called being born again. Have you done that? We find out here they marveled at Him. God help us to marvel at Him as well. I trust today that if you don't know Him as your Savior, you'll get it settled. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.